This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my lovely betwixters. How are you? Oh, I'm so pleased that you have dropped by yet again. I have so much fun talking to you. I really do. But before you're allowed to listen to what's coming your way, you know what we have to do. You know the drill. That's right. It is your fair dues warning. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things in an adulty way, covering a range of adult subjects, and you should be an adult too. Whew. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel safer. Right. On with the show. Twixters, fancy joining me for a bit of wedding crashing in the ancient world? Well, of course you do. The year is approximately 338 BC and Philip II of Macedon is marrying his seventh wife, Cleopatra. Not that Cleopatra, different Cleopatra. Honestly, it causes no end of confusion. Oh, and it's toast time. Shh, everybody, listen, listen. Up stands a potential successor to him, Attalus, who is Cleopatra's uncle and a general to Philip. Hmm, big mover and shaker. Controversially, he says to Philip, may the gods give you legitimate children to succeed you to the throne of Macedon. That sounds quite nice on the surface, but that is some serious shade being thrown at the teenage Alexander, who is also in attendance because his mother, Olympia, is not a Macedonian. See what he did there? Bitchy. Hmm. The not-so-great Alexander is pretty pissed off, and I would be too. A fight breaks out. Always the mark of a great wedding in my book. In a matter of years, Philip is assassinated, and Alexander will take the throne. The boy will become a man. But what of this man's personal life? Let's see what we can find out. Just how great was he? What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing a button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, Jerry. Hello, and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lester. When someone mentions Alexander the Great, what is it that you think of? If you know your ancient history, maybe you're thinking of the multiple military victories he got, but if you're anything like me, you just think of Colin Farrell in a blonde wig. <laughs> he did... I thought he looked very pretty as Alexander. I may be in the minority. But ignoring all of that, we're talking serious history here. We are making our way through a timeline of sexuality this year, and we are revisiting an episode from a little while back with the wonderful, the fabulous, the gorgeous Tristan Hughes, host of our history hit sister podcast, The Ancients, who is going to tell us all about Alexander the Great's sex life. 
Seriously, though, Alexander the Great was a pretty busy boy. How he had time for shagging anything is absolutely beyond me. But if anyone can tell us how the young king had time for taking lovers in between taking on the Persian Empire, it's Tristan. And did you know that Alexander had male as well as female lovers? Oh, yeah, yeah. Equal opportunity sluttery going on over here. But was his libido any match for his father's, who was apparently at it like a dog with two dicks. I don't know if I can say that. But I am ready to find out if you are. So hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only flipping Tristan Hughes. How are you? Oh, hello, Kate. Long time coming and I'm so looking forward to this. I'm very well and it's lovely to, well, lovely to talk all things that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. I am so excited to have you here as the host of my, I don't want to say sister podcast. I'm very happy. I'm very happy either way. We can call it a sister podcast. I, I'm going to make you a podcaster girl. I'm going to say it's <laughs> sister podcast, the ancients. <laughs> Congratulations, it's a girl. <laughs> but we're not talking about a girl today, although we'll definitely be talking about some girls. We are talking about the one and only Alexander the Great. We are indeed. Are you a bit of a fanboy? Uh, oh, I wouldn't, you know, I've... Is that too far? My life is... In ancient history terms, obviously centred around his death and what happened following his death with the chaos that was the successor wars and all of that. I find that so extraordinary. And, you know, the legacy of this figure is seismic and what he did during his life. And then this mythical afterlife of Alexander that emerges, mm. you know, these fantastical stories of Alexander became medieval bestsellers, like Arthurian tales later one. There's stories where he goes to the bottom of the ocean in a submarine and goes flying in an ancient <laughs> flying contraption in another one of these romances. It's great. Um, but of course very flawed character as well you know was he great was he not genocidal maniac on one side but on the other hand he said his legacy arguably you can still see today so it's only right that we talk about him in today's podcast did he call himself the great was he known that in his lifetime just introduce himself as hi i'm alexander alexander the great <laughs> no i don't think so i think that comes later but i couldn't tell you exactly when it comes it's very interesting though how it you see some figures in ancient history particularly after alexander who are called the great in their lifetime, but they're not actually really that great. That's just... <laughs> That'd be awful. Trying to introduce yourself at like a, an office party. It's like, hello, I'm Tristan the Great. And everyone kind of going, really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> just... Hi. Living your own world. That would be awful. Like, I mean, we're talking about his sex life as well. I mean, it'd be awful if you had to try and introduce yourself as, you know, hi, I'm Kate the Great. And, you know, to a potential lover, that's setting yourself up, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Just like, okay, yep. You've thrown the boat out there. You've thrown down the gauntlet. You've got a lot to live up to. And if it doesn't, you know, your reputation, you know, everyone's just going to be like, well, yeah. It's in tatters. Not really. What was his full name? What would he have introduced himself as? Well, he was the Argaid from the Argaid dynasty, the Argaid line, the royal thing. Yeah. King Alexander III of Macedon is, he was the third of his name for the royal Argaid Macedonian line. But I couldn't tell you exactly if there are many epithets that he gave him, but of what you see in the sources, you know, Alexandros, the third of his name and so on and so forth. That's still a pretty good title. <laughs> it's still, I mean, if it's not quite great, that's still, that's impressive. He is an absolutely fascinating figure when you look at that. And it's also, when you look at his family too, it's more than just the man, the people that he's surrounded by in his family, whether it's his father, mm. whether it's his warrior-like half-sister, elder half-sister, Kanane, who is just such an incredible character, or his full sister, Cleopatra, even his half-brother, Philip Aradeus, and his young son, Alexander. He's a man in a family which is full of, like, incredible personalities. You know, we always kind of focus in on Alexander, but there's so much more to the story of ancient Macedon and his family than just that king. Huh. And I suppose we should probably start by talking about his dad. Hmm. I suppose it'd be fair to say Alexander the Great had a few daddy issues <laughs> in, yeah, in the mix. Like, what kind of world did Alexander grow up in? And how did that... It's difficult, isn't it? But, like, the impact of his sex life. But, like, what was his dad like? What was Alexander's childhood like? Well, it was so many parts of Alexander's story. You almost always have to go back to the story of his dad, who is King Philip II of Macedon, because he is integral in forming the Macedonian kingdom, in forming the Macedonian state that Alexander the Great inherits when Philip is assassinated in 336 BC. But Philip II of Macedon, he comes to the throne of Macedon in about 359 BC. And at that time, Macedon is very much on the edges of the Greek world. It's on the brink of chaos. It's surrounded by enemies, like Thracians, Paeonians, Illyrians. Mm. And what Philip does during his reign through 
through a series of different initiatives is he transforms Macedon almost from this backwater into the dominant power in the central Mediterranean. Oh, well done, Phil. Well done, Phil, indeed. You know, he's normally overlooked compared to Alexander the Great, but I love this sometimes this debate about who was more important, Philip or Alexander. Who was the greater. Exactly. And I think quite a lot of people now going on the side of Philip. But Philip, he had quite a lot of, well, I'm not going to say vices, but things that the ancient sources highlight in the literature, which seems to be very much contrasted with Alexander. And one way is, for instance, his, his sex life. Philip, he's polygamous. He has several wives during the course of his reign, but they are all as a result of, normally at the end of wars, there was a joke that Philip Marriott had a new wife after every war he fought because there was this diplomatic part in his marriages and the fact that it helped him to cement, to increase Macedon's power. So all these various different ways in which he's able to increase Macedon's power, he reforms the army, he revolutionises the army with like the Macedonian phalanx, this central infantry tactical formation that his Macedonian soldiers centre around, new heavy cavalry, reforms the logistics train of it all. But another way he does it is through diplomatic marriages. And as mentioned, by the end of his reign, according to the sources, he has some seven marriages He has several children by different wives. One of them, of course, is Alexander's mother, Olympias, who has Alexander as her son, but also a daughter called Cleopatra, who's Alexander's only full sister. But there are several others as well. But it's very interesting that in the ancient world, there are only two of his seven wives who are Macedonian. The other five are, one's a Thracian or a member of the Getai royal family. Two are Thessalian. One, Alexander's mother, Olympias, is Melossian. I don't even know where Melostia is. Well, it's a funny one, because if you type in Melossia today, you'll get that little, I'm not going to call it a kingdom or something, but I think someone's tried to form his own little kind of independent place in the centre of the <laughs> USA. But Melossia is now in northwest Greece, and it's more commonly known as part of Epirus, this ancient region of Epirus, which today covers southern Albania and northwest Greece. But Alexander, he's born into a world where his father, King Philip II, he has several marriages. There is no settled succession in the Macedonian royal family. So even though Alexander, we now think of him as the heir of Philip, there was no guarantee that that was going to happen before Philip's assassination in 338 BC. He has an elder brother. He has sisters as well. Court intrigue, factional strife is rife at the court of Philip II in the Macedonian royal court. And part of that is to do with Philip's sex life. This is like a Jerry Springer nightmare, this is, isn't it? He's he's got so many wives and so many children, and every time he has a war, he gets a wife at the end of it, like a bizarre trophy (laughs) or consolation prize in her case. So there's loads of kids, and and, uh, was he faithful to his seven wives? Oh, no, absolutely not. No, <laughs> we definitely know that. We know, so he married there, but it wasn't looked down upon for Philip to have courtesans as well, but also male lovers too. Oh, male lovers. Now that's interesting. Okie doke. All right, tell me about that. So this is interesting with Philip II of Macedon. With ancient Greek culture and with the Macedonian elite at this time with Philip II, there seems to be very much this from the sources. It's a very prickly topic to talk about. It's a horrid topic, but it's the ancient Greek pederasty, mm. which you do see you know, with Sparta, Athens, and it continues into the late 4th century at the time of Philip II of Macedon in Macedonia. And we get this idea of an older man and a younger adolescent boy who's known as the Beloved. And we hear in the sources of Philip II having at least two, potentially three of these figures who we know of by name, potentially more, one of whom is actually involved in his assassination, which occurs in 338 BC. Oh, dear. I mean, there there are a few examples to highlight. There are two figures called Pausanias who I'll get to, but another figure I find quite interesting. He's only mentioned in one of the sources as being a catamite, of Philip II, which is a young man also called Alexander. Not to be confused with Philip's son, Alexander, who had gone to be Alexander III of Macedon, Alexander oh the Great. God. They need to find some new names for a start. Well, the amount of Cleopatras and Alexanders <laughs> and Perdiccases at this time, Kate, is absolutely mad. But in one source, which is Justin, he talks about this other figure called Alexander, who comes to the royal court of Macedon as a hostage. Right. Because Alexander is a member of the Molossian royal family. He's the brother of Olympias 
who marries Philip. Oh, this is getting very complicated. Right, okay. It's very, yes. You must have had post-it notes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Philip of Macedon trying desperately to work out who he's nobbed the night before, who's related to who, which international incident am I going to... Right, okay, so this is Alexander from... <clears throat> so this is another one, but right. because he's the brother of Olympias, who he marries, who is the mother of Alexander the Great... The one played by Angelina Jolie in the film. The one played by Angelina Jolie in the film, absolutely. Right. But he grows up at the royal court of Macedon and he receives an education there and then he'll later go back and be reinstated as the new king of this kingdom to the southwest of Macedon. But in Justin, he says that Alexander also becomes the beloved of Philip once he's at the royal court of Macedon. It's a, quite a fucked up practice, isn't it, really? Um, and by our own standards, it, you can't feel it's anything other than pederasty. But it was very common across the ancient world, this idea that like a young boy would somehow be like apprenticed to an older man who would teach him lots of important things. And it would be a sexual relationship. It seems absolutely bonkers to our modern eyes, doesn't it? But not only was it fine, it was aspirational as well. It really is. And it's a, you, there is examples of it, as we've just mentioned, you know, at the court of Philip II, among the Macedonian elites at that time and down into the time of Alexander the Great too, because we know that he had at least one younger male lover who actually wasn't a Macedonian, a Persian eunuch called Bagoas. But as you say, really, for our minds today, it's horrible. It's really nasty to think about. But as you say, this was a part of this culture that there was, and we have to talk about it, especially if we're talking about Philip at the start here. Yeah. How young are we talking here? Oh, goodness. Well, in the example of Philip... Let's take the case of Pausanias or Alexander. Pausanias, one we're told, is a page at the Macedonian royal court, so almost certainly a teenager. Right. Alexander of Molossia, he's also very much a boy when he comes to the royal court of Macedon, and he's reinstated as the king of Molossia in around 342, 341 BC. So he spends ten more than 10 years at the court of Philip II of Macedon, and that is during his teenage years too. So I can think we can imagine around that age. They're teenagers. Mm. I've often, do you think that this is because, and this is a sort of a theory that I've got, and I might be really wrong, that this practice arose because there was actually quite a lot of shame in just having a male lover of your age, because there's a something implied in taking the quote unquote feminine role that there wasn't as much. If you were what we would now call the top in vernacular, the one doing the penetrating, you were manly and fine, but there's still quite a, there was still quite a lot of shame attached to being sort of the feminine role and this idea of it being a younger man because they aren't past puberty and they aren't, you know, fully grown men. Does that play into it or have I just imagined that? I think so. No, I think absolutely because he said the older man known as like the pursuer of the Orestes and the younger adolescent boy, like the pursued, the Oromenos. Mm. And there is very much that idea, as you say, you know, the masculine and the feminine there. But it is very interesting also, this idea of actually a male lover your age, the prickly topic of Alexander and Hephaestion, greatly debated whether they were lovers or not. But we do, in the story of Alexander the Great, with this conspiracy called the Royal Pages Conspiracy, we have evidence of soldiers, elite Macedonian figures, these pages, basically a young Macedonian officer school for like these teenagers learning to be officers, of them having sexual relations with another young man from the pages the two of them become lovers. We hear about that a few times in this great conspiracy of these. We know certain figures. So that is quite interesting of you there having lovers your same age mm. in a military circle. Right, OK, so we've got this very bizarre and convoluted family life that he's got. I mean, Christmas must have been a nightmare in that family. It must have cost <laughs> everyone a fortune. I'm not sure what their equivalent of Christmas would have been back there. But, um, Good point. It's very, very interesting because you do see, especially during the reign of Philip II, as mentioned, there is no settled succession. So you see these rival factions emerging at court. You see Olympias, Alexander's mother, playing a prominent role. You have, before the assassination of Philip II, when he marries his seventh and final wife, this woman called Cleopatra, another Cleopatra, who is like from the Macedonian heartlands, Macedonian noble family. They're at the wedding feast where they're celebrating the marriage of Philip to Cleopatra. And Cleopatra's uncle makes a toast. Alexander the Great is there. He is there reclining. He is at the wedding feast. And Attalus, basically, he stands up and he says, may the gods give you brilliant children, you know, legitimate children to succeed you to the throne of Macedon. And this is evidently, this is a shot at Alexander the Great and the fact that his mother, Olympias, isn't 
a Macedonian. And Alexander doesn't react well to this. He stands up, you know, there's a shouting match. You know, he's basically accusing Attalus of accusing him of not being Philip's successor, of not being, you know, a legitimate successor to Philip. It results in him going in exile for a bit. And so you have these various stories around the time just before Philip II is assassinated, which once again emphasizes how to those around Philip and potentially to Philip himself, it's not very certain that Alexander is going to be Philip's successor. Okay. It's only clear that that happens after Philip's assassination and Alexander assumes the kingship straight away and then removes potential rivals. Who bumped him off? Do we know that? So who bumped Philip II off? That goes back to the figure of Pausanias, who is another of his male lovers. Right. So the story behind that is Pausanias, according to the sources, he's a royal page, he's a younger man at the court of Mastodon. He had been the lover, the beloved of Philip II, but... At a later date, Philip II decides to basically shun Pausanias and take another male lover, also called Pausanias. So that's Pausanias too. Oh, that's just salt in the wound, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it's a really interesting story that you get because Pausanias, you know, he's obviously probably angry with Philip about that. But then at that royal wedding you know, ceremony feast where Attalus derides Alexander to his face in front of Alexander... What also happens that night, according to the sources, is that Attalus instigates a gang rape Whoa. of Pausanias I, who's already been shunned by Philip, by other elite Macedonian figures at that feast. Oh, that's grim. And Pausanias afterwards, he's a noble Macedonian. He is still actually one of the, he is a leading soldier in Philip's army. He demands justice for how Attalus has treated him, for how these people have treated him at the wedding feast. But Philip, because Attalus is his new bride's uncle, doesn't do anything about it. And so Pausanias, the resentment grows and grows and grows. Potentially, he is working with Olympias, the mother of Alexander the Great, who is also keen to ensure that Alexander is the successor. What happens is that a couple of years later, during this great another marriage ceremony, Philip is entering the theatre at Agai in the heartlands of Macedon, and Pausanias is there. He greets him and he assassinates Philip. Pausanias is killed in the aftermath. But there you go. There's a kind of a, a horrible love story that is attached to the death of Philip II horrifically there. Well, fuck around and find out, Phil. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I feel very sorry for... What was it, Pausanias? Pausanias, yes. Oh. And that's the story that comes over again and again and again in regards to the assassination of Philip II. Now, because Pausanias dies in the aftermath... It's always kind of speculated as to who he was helped by in the killing of Philip II. Hence why Olympias's name is sometimes associated. And she would have motive right, okay. because it were to secure Alexander as the successor. But Alexander would also have motive too. So that's why those two names are always associated with potentially aiding Pausanias, with irking him on, with giving him potential support to assassinate Philip II. So his dad gets bumped off and Alexander pretty much just goes, that's mine, the throne's mine. So it's kind of like a coup and then he becomes king. But do we have any idea of what his sex life was like at the time? Obviously not the time he was killing everyone. He'd have been pretty <laughs> preoccupied at that point. How old was he? Well, when Alexander comes to the throne, late. well, he's born in about 356 and Philip II is assassinated in 336. So he's about 20 years old when he comes to the throne. God, he dies at the age bonkers, of 32. I know. I know, just yeah. imagine a 20-year-old Tristan or a 20-year-old Kate assuming control of an ancient Holy kingdom. Can you imagine? Shit. So he comes to the throne and, as mentioned, he dies age 32, so only 13 years later. But in that time, you know, when he comes to the throne, one thing of Alexander's sex life is that we don't hear that much of it compared to his other things, compared to, for instance, his military achievements, this obsession with becoming the greatest, idolising his Homeric heroes of old and besting them, idolising demigods like Hercules and getting further in the world, going beyond them, surpassing them. He was engrossed by that. But this doesn't suggest that Alexander didn't have that much interest in sex at all, although this is sometimes said by later sources. I have heard that about him, actually. People just kind of go, nah, I wasn't that interested in it. I don't think that's the case. I mean, there's some great stories about that, but that's one line of thought as to why his sex life is no way near as promiscuous as his father, King Philip. Slutty. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> He's a messy bitch, that <laughs> Philip, honestly. So much more relaxed. There we go. I love it. I'm <laughs> loving this so much, Kate. But what is so interesting is that what is emphasised in the source again and again is this idea of his sexual sophrisonate, his sexual moderation that we see. <laughs> 
okay. But we do, nevertheless, we have several examples surviving from the many sources that's survived by Alexander the Great of him with several different sexual partners. But before he really assumes the throne, before he begins his Persian conquest, goes east and so on and so forth, is around a courtesan called Calixena, sometimes called Cambaspe, uh, Pancaste, sometimes the names differs in some of the sources. I think it's all really focused around one Thessalian woman, okay. a Thessalian courtesan called Calixena, who was renowned as one of the most beautiful women in the Greek world at the time. Wow. And the story around this, it preserves in a few of the sources. Take it with a pinch of salt. Okay. But it's a great story nonetheless. And I think regardless, we can presume that Calixena was an actual person who was renowned at the time. But the story goes that Philip and Olympias, you know, the mum and dad of Alexander the Great, are worried that Alexander's not interested in sex, sex with a woman at least. So basically, they hire Calixena and they basically beg her to have sex with Alexander. And then apparently in one source, Olympias begs Alexander, please have sex with Calixena, please. You're, well, you're in your late teens now. You must be 18, 19, something like that. Well, probably younger, to be honest. But I, she's begging Alexander to have sex with Calixena. And apparently wow. Alexander does so reluctantly. And for the sources that do have this story, it's like Alexander loses his virginity to this Thessalian courtesan. Alexina. But it is very interesting because that's really the only story we have of Alexander having a female lover before he ascends the throne, before he begins his Persian conquest. Because, you know, it's so interesting with him that we have that dearth of stories relating to it. And following that, I mean, he stays a bachelor for most of his life following that. But that's not to say he doesn't have any sexual escapades, shall we say. be back with Tristan and Alexander after this short break. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. busy boy wasn't he he was focused he was global domination will deplete your time for pursuing lovers i suppose but 
That is an interesting story that keeps coming up about him, was just that he was just, no, no not, not that first. Well, exactly. It's so interesting. And I think there are sometimes political reasons why he certainly, like, for instance, he doesn't marry or have sex with certain Persian princesses earlier on his reign than he perhaps could have done, and why he does that later, all to do with his relationship with the Macedonian soldiers, his dependence on the Macedonian soldiers. Yeah. But there are other cases where it is, you know, it is just really interesting. I mean, if we go back to Alexander before he begins his conquest of the Persian Empire, there are two of his senior adjutants, much older than he is, like close allies of his father, Philip II, these two figures called Parmenion and Antipater. And, you know, they are senior, they are veteran, they know the scene of the Macedonian royal family of court politics, as does Alexander. But they basically say, Alexander, before you begin this conquest of the Persian Empire, you know, this is pretty dangerous stuff, particularly with your leadership style, where you're going to be leading from the front in all of your battles. You should probably you know, maybe just, just hold back for a few years, marry, have an heir, make sure you have an heir, and then you can go wild. Mm. Then let's go and campaign and conquer the Persian Empire. Alexander has none of that. He's just like, no, I'm going straight away and to conquer the Persian Empire. So you do see these stories by these, I hate to say perhaps like more conservative, lower C members of the Macedonian elites talking to him again and again and again, basically advising Alexander to have sex more, basically, mm. following in the footsteps of Philip and Olympias. But Alexander is always very much determined to do what he wants to do. And he's engrossed by this desire to surpass his Homeric heroes of old from the Iliad and these demigods like Heracles. Do you think, and this, this isn't a fair question, we're going to ask it anyway, do you think he was gay? This is like the thing that hangs over Alexander the Great, like all the time, like, was he bisexual? Was he asexual? Was he this? And I know we can never actually get a proper answer to that, but for your money, what was going on? It's very difficult to say, obviously, this dichotomy that we have between homosexual and heterosexual today didn't exist in the ancient Greek world and the tradition. Didn't exist. Very important to know. Yes. Which is good to know, first off, you know, can I clear my back on that? But it's very interesting. If we put a modern label on it today, he was almost certainly bisexual mm. in the fact that we know that he had female lovers and we know that he had at least one male lover in the figure okay. of Bagoas, this eunuch. And once again, I think personally, more likely than not, that he and Hephaestion his closest friend also had a sexual relationship as mm -hmm. well. Like mm -hmm. how long that lasted and that endured as a sexual relationship, it was evidently stronger than that. They were just really close friends. Anyway, we can never know how long it lasted. But I think with Hephaestion, I absolutely do. So I think the evidence from the literature, go and really have his literature for this stuff, is there that he, you know, he liked men, he liked women too. Mm. Fascinating, isn't it? And, and we've got to, like, I suppose, remember that when we talk about famous people or extraordinary people throughout history, we almost want them to have something interesting, some sexual quirk about them. It's, it's really boring if it's just like, no, he just he loved his wife and they had sex in the missionary position once a week with the lights out. Like, we want there to be something, you know, like... We want them to have, like, a fleet of oh, courtesans and... Oh, Kate, trust me. Like, especially <laughs> with Alexander. We haven't got to the Amazon story yet. This amazing... Oh, God, right, OK, OK, get to the Amazon story. Come on, come on, because it's a wonderful story. It is preserved, actually, in a couple of our Alexander historians, like Quintus Curtius, Rufus. Uh, we'll sort of the fact from the fiction later, but let's just tell the story as it is, first of all, because it is great. So this is a few years into Alexander's campaigns, conquest against the Persian Empire. He's defeated the Persian king Darius III at a couple of set battles. In fact, Darius III has just been murdered by one of his subordinates. That's all going on, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's a brilliant, brutal, horrific, but extraordinary story in so many different parts, but we're focusing on this part today, aren't we? So I want to, yes. let's delve into it. <laughs> so Alexander at this time, he is just southeast of what is now the Caspian Sea in this region called Hyrcania. And Apparently, in a couple of our sources, it is then that the queen of the Amazons, a woman called Thalestris, approaches the camp of Alexander and requests an audience of Alexander. And she's got the classic Amazon look. She's got one of her breasts cauterized. She's got spears. She's riding on horseback. The breast cauterized so she can bring the drawstring of her bow back to fire fine. Fuck, love. Just a spot crab. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, so she's cut her boob off. That would make an impression. Well, yeah, and so she approaches Alexander and her kingdom supposedly lies in the area from the sources, oh, it says ancient Colchis, so really modern day Georgia between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, just below the Caucasus. And she approaches Alexander and it basically goes along the lines of, Alexander, you are evidently the greatest man in the world from what you've done. I am evidently the greatest woman in the world. We should have sex. And because of that, from our, you know, our offspring, 
who, whatever child we have will evidently be like a superhuman. Wow. Will be like the greatest child that has ever been. And in a couple of the sources, Alexander's a bit, he kind of says, okay, but he doesn't seem, you know, that interested. In other ones, he's very excited and he's very keen to do. And um, they have sex for 13 days. Think of the cystitis. That's ridiculous. No one's having sex for 13 days. I know, it's a (laughs) fantastic story that is preserved in a couple of, I said, it's like Quintus Curtius Rufus from the time, which highlight this meeting of Alexander the Great with this Amazonian queen. After 13 days, Thalestris, she feels like they've probably conceived by then. So she heads back to her kingdom. She parts ways with Alexander. Alexander supposedly offers, you know, she's come along, you know, come stay with us for a bit longer. Come and campaign with us. And she says, nope, nope, I'm off. I'm done. I'm done. If it's a daughter, she stays with me in the kingdom of the Amazons, you know, in the queendom of the Amazons. If it's a son, I will send the son to you and he will rejoin you in your camp, you know, later on during the campaigns. And we never hear anything else about the story whatsoever. But it's a fascinating, fantastical story that becomes associated with Alexander so quickly, really quickly, in fact, because this is where you have to sort the fact from the fiction. Almost certainly this is fictitious. This is a fantastical story, but it's applied on Alexander's story almost immediately, because one of Alexander's adjutants is a man called Lysimachus. He would go on later to become the king of a kingdom in Monday, Bulgaria, around the region of ancient Thrace. And according to, in one of the sources, it mentions how basically Lysimachus, his court historian, is retelling this story of Alexander meeting the Amazonian queen. And Lysimachus supposedly jokes when he hears this story, where was I at this point? Because he was campaigning with Alexander. So he kind of takes the piss out of it because, you know, they all kind of know that this is absolute nonsense and this has been fabricated. But it is an amazing story that is quickly added to Alexander's sex life story. There's a similar, similar-ish story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, one a really early one, that the harlot Shamhat was sent to tame the wild man Inkadu. And they had sex for seven days and seven nights. And then when they'd finished, he was no longer wild and he couldn't talk to animals anymore. Right. How interesting. So I don't know, like, I I wouldn't recommend anyone having sex for this prolonged amount of time, unless you've got snacks (laughs) and you're well hydrated. Mind you, he's the king, isn't he? He probably had snacks just brought in. (laughs) But maybe, like, the idea of, like, epic lovemaking feats with these really impressive people. Maybe it crops up in other traditions. Well, I wonder. I mean, I've never heard that epic of Gilgamesh story. You know, that's seven days, and this is 13 days. I think the 13 days part of it is the most extraordinary part of this fantastical story in itself. But as soon as Alexander dies, he becomes this divine figure. Mm. You know, his funeral carriage is shaped as a mini temple on wheels. Wow. You know, he wants to be buried, supposedly, at the Oracle of Zeus, who he was now saying was his father, you know, declared the son of Zeus and so on and so forth. So, you know, this idea, you know, this extraordinary idea may well be linked to these divine stories attached to Alexander, which just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I mentioned, you know, the submarine and the flying contraption much later on medieval times, you know, they just evolve and evolve and evolve over the centuries. So actually with the whole story of Alexander, it is sometimes very difficult to sort fact from fiction because so much of it, is mythologized. I don't think anyone can have sex for 13 days. I'm just going to put that out there. Tantra mantra. There's no one's having sex for 13 days. <laughs> but you're going to have to tell me about Bogoeth. Okay. Because he's a really interesting figure. And whether or not Amazons with cauterized boobs were real, he seems to be real, doesn't he, Bogoeth? He does. And it's interesting because he is explicitly mentioned as a lover of Alexander. This is something that Hephaestion is never mentioned explicitly in the sources as a lover of Alexander. He's always just known as a, a close friend. But I think we can that Vaishin was a lover when you look at all the evidence. I would put my money on that. I think that they were in love. It's an interesting story with Bigoas because actually we don't hear that much about him. We know a little bit from the Greek sources. I mean, I don't know if the Persian version says more about him, but we know that he was a eunuch of King Darius III, the great king of Persia, and that he was also a lover of King Darius III, which also, if we could believe the Greek sources on this, suggests something about the Persian royal king as well, this idea of a younger male lover also there with King Darius III. It's an interesting story where Begoas falls into Alexander's hands. He gets a lot of political influence at court. There's one case where Begoas is instrumental in pleading the case of a captured Persian official governor called Nabazanes, who had been involved I think he was involved actually in the murder of Darius III, or he betrayed Darius III. So Alexander doesn't think very highly of him, but he is spared because of the intervention of Begoas. So Begoas was the lover of Darius III, becomes the lover 
of Alexander the Great. We hear of a couple of stories where he is involved, which is, for instance, the sparing of this Persian official. And we hear later, apparently as well, at a ceremony of some kind, apparently the Macedonian soldiers, they see Alexander with Bogoas and they call out in celebration that Alexander give Bogoas a kiss, which he does. But we don't hear that much. Ooh, with tongues? I'm afraid I don't have that information to hand. Alexander's several wives as well. He has a couple of, not mistresses, but female lovers, women he has sex with who he doesn't marry. Barsine's a fascinating example. They have an illegitimate childhood they call Heracles, but Heracles doesn't fare well after Alexander's death. Neither does Barsine. He marries a few times, all diplomatically, it seems, Roxana in the Far East, then two Persian princesses, neither of whom survived long after Alexander's death either. How many people did he marry? He only marries three. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, compared to his father, Philip II, <laughs> that's nothing. That's less than half. But he marries three. And they're all diplomatic. They're all with Asian elites, noble women or princesses. Right. Two daughters of Darius, one daughter of a prominent chieftain in what is modern-day Uzbekistan to kind of try and pacify that area. So it's a fascinating example because you have those marriages which are evidently diplomatic. There's only one child conceived from the marriages before he dies, which is the infant who's also called Alexander, Alexander IV, who, like Philip Herodias, following Alexander's death, is very much controlled by the successors, by the generals who come to the fore following Alexander's death. So it's a fascinating example of that. But Roxana, you know, her story following Alexander's death she grows up in Monday Uzbekistan. She goes back to Babylon. She's involved in the murder of her rival brides, potentially, almost certainly, to make sure that her son becomes a successor. That's ruthless, isn't it? It's the Macedonian Game of Thrones. That's Bridezilla. It was kind of Bridezilla in that case. But, you know, she, compared to what the others do following Alexander's death, the horrific stuff that they got up to with the murders of people. Is it like an absolute bun fight, just that everyone loses their shit completely? Everyone loses their shit. Everyone's trying to gain some authority, some power, some legitimacy in this really unstable new post-Alexander world. And, you know, Alexander the Great's death is like one of the most seismic events that's ever happened in the ancient world when it happens, because people have no clue what's going to happen next, really. And then with Alexander's empire... Former brothers in arms become the most hated of enemies. You have, you know, some horrific murders taking place of members of Alexander's family. Some of his wives, his mother Olympias is a later murder, but she's also involved in the murder of other figures too. You have his half-sister who's murdered. You have his full sister who's murdered. Only one sister of Alexander the Great survives, a half-sister called Thessalonike. You have Alexander's child killed. You have his illegitimate child, Heracles, also killed. Like It is the generals who take power following Alexander's death. They ultimately go as far as killing Alexander's successors, his family members, Holy fuck. to ensure that they retain power. It is horrific, yeah. I suppose it's because Alexander, well, you know, it's much better than me, but Alexander the Great, like, he'd done something that had never been done before. He conquered what was, at the time, the known world, and then he ups and dies at 32, and it's like, well, now what the fuck do we do? Well, I mean, that's the thing. And it's so interesting because because he marries late arguably late in his reign. And, you know, the only legitimate child from his wife that he has is unborn at the time that he dies. There's no clear successor. There's no clear heir. That results in a lot of turmoil straight away. But it's kind of, in a way, it's Alexander's own fault for not, you know, the advice of his old guards before he left to campaign against the Persian Empire. Marry, have an heir before you go. Sort your shit out. Even though there's never any settled succession in Macedonian politics, royal family at that time, mm. that would have at least helped to some regard, potentially. But he marries late for several reasons. Once again, we always get this idea of sexual moderation, that he was just so obsessed with being better than his heroic, semi-mythical idols and Heracles and the like, that he was just obsessed with that and less focused on what if he died, what would happen next. And ultimately, that results in the chaos that it engulfs his empire almost immediately following his death. I always feel sorry for there must be people in these families who are like, they have no interest in this. They don't want to be king or queen or whatever it is. They just want to live in their house and eat sandwiches and just do a bit of gardening. But just because they are part of this, they're always at risk. And they might want nothing to do with it at all. And there's just some guard somewhere plotting that because you're Alexander's third cousin twice removed, who once had sex with one of his mates, that you are now a target. 
Yeah, because you could be used as a figurehead by a rival claimant to whoever I am in control of Macedonia or whatever, and they could use you to try and garner support amongst the populace who, you know, love Alexander or whatever, and then you could topple me. So I see you potentially as a threat. Absolutely brutal. Alexander saw rivals to him, like his cousin Amintas, as soon as he comes to the throne, gets rid of him. Olympias sees, it's almost certainly Olympias involved in it, the murders Philip's last wife, Cleopatra, and her infant daughter... Even her infant daughter is not spared, which really does seem pretty brutal and over the top, but they are removed as well. Because there's this idea, and I think actually it's very true for the female relatives of Alexander's family, particularly following Alexander's death, where if they don't act first, they are going to be used by these generals trying to seek power post-Alexander the Great, because one of the key ways to kind of legitimise yourself as a ruler would be by marrying into the family of Alexander the Great, which several do try to do. So you see many cases like Kanane, this warrior Amazon figure, gathers an army. She's half Illyrian. She's very much a bellicose, an incredible a warrior princess, really respected amongst Macedonian soldiers. She gathers an army to try and put her teenage daughter on the Macedonian throne to secure herself and her daughter in this unstable post-Alexander world by marrying her to the new king, Philip Aradeus III. So she takes actions into her own hands before someone thinks, I should marry Kanane or whoever. God, you'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah. So it's very much, it's for women in particular, Olympias and Cleopatra do this as well following Alexander's death. They form an extraordinary mother-daughter team. They try to attach themselves to a particular general or to the king before they are used. Some people would always kind of portray this, and I think it's completely wrong, I think. Well, I think it's wrong to an extent that, you know, all these women are, they're just power hungry. They just want to be the voices behind the thrones, the real influence. Mm. It's all to do with safety and security in this unstable time. Because if they didn't act, they were going to be used by someone else. Yeah, or bumped off. Or bumped off, exactly. So um, Alexander's sex life, and then the successes of sex life as well when it comes to Alexander's family members, is it, it's really interesting. I know we've only just scratched the surface, but uh, I hope you've got an idea of the ex- complete turmoil, Kate, that there is. That is, I mean, you know, I thought that things got messy with Tinder or <laughs> something, but this is, like, this is just a whole other level of chaos. My final question, just because I want to know now, what happened to Bogoas and Hephaestion? Like, the ones that... Alexander probably did love. Did they get out of this all right? Did they manage to retire somewhere? Nice retirement home for eunuchs? So I can answer the Hephaestion question, absolutely. The Begoas question, someone probably told me that there is a source which mentions what happens to Begoas, but from my memory, I do not know what happens to Begoas. He kind of fades out of existence, really, from my knowledge. With Hephaestion, it's much clearer because Hephaestion dies before Alexander the Great. And one of the great kind of um, cases that is kind of used to potentially suggest, you know, well, it evidently shows that they were very, very close friends. Some have used it to emphasise how mm-hmm. Alexander was also a lover of their lovers, is the fact that when Hephaestion dies in Ekbatana, which is like northern Iran today, south of the Caucasus Mountains, northwest Iran, when he dies in 324 BC, the level of grief by Alexander is unprecedented it's crazy like he basically goes mad like he grieves for so long about the death of Hephaestion and there are some people who when talking about the death of Alexander the Great there are several different parts that cause Alexander's death that aren't poison it's definitely not poison so it might be his excessive drinking it might be the war wounds that he suffered he suffered several severe war wounds over the course of his campaign but another factor in his early death may well have been this excessive grief may well have been grief for the loss of Hephaestion that is one potential suggestion surrounding a potential cause of Alexander the Great's death broken heart he constructs this massive funeral pyre for Hephaestion in Ecbatana and I know that also in one of the sources when following Alexander's death, they find these last plans of Alexander where he had these, fantastical is the wrong word, but extra extraordinary ideas for the future, like creating a road that linked the Eastern Mediterranean to the pillars of Hercules, to the Straits of Gibraltar, all these port towns, you know, creating a massive 1,000 plus ship fleet in the Eastern Mediterranean, creating a tomb for his father, Philip II, bigger than the largest building of the time, the Great the Pyramids of Giza. But another thing supposedly was to create a great funeral monument for Hephaestion as well, which would have cost so much money. So we know how Hephaestion dies. He dies before Alexander the Great of illness, if I remember correctly, in 324 BC. And what we see from that, for result from that, is this incredible grief mm. from Alexander. So you can say without doubt, 
that they were the closest of friends. Oh, they were very, very close. And I think it's, yeah, as you say, I think it's more than likely that, if not for all the time, at least for a part of their time, that they were lovers too. Yeah, I think so. Oh, Alexander. Tristan, you've been amazing to talk to today. I could have kept going at this for hours and hours. We can next time at the History Hit, you know, get together. We're just going to keep <laughs> just talking. Keep, we'll just have Alexander, the messy bitch, part two. Oh, my days. And then we can keep going. If people want to know more about you, and they should, where can they find you? Well, you can find me. I am on social media. I do social media once in a while on Twitter and Instagram. But, of course, the main thing you can find me on is as the host of the Ancients podcast in the History Hit stable alongside the shining lights that are betwixt the sheets and the several others that we have there. So, and you can listen, we do two episodes a week released. Our mission is just to share these incredible stories from ancient history with as many people as possible. And long may that continue. Long may it continue. Tristan, thank you so much. You've been an absolute legend. Kate, absolute pleasure and thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to Tristan for joining me. How much fun was he? And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like us to explore a subject or maybe you just fancied saying hello, then you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We have got episodes on everything from the real Outlander to the sex life of Rabbi Burns, all coming your way. This podcast was edited by Tom DeLaghi and produced by Sophie G and Stuart Beckworth. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.